A former army drill sergeant took a new job as a school teacher, but just before the school session was about to begin, he hurt his back, and they had to put him in a full body cast, upper body cast. It was a thin one, so fortunately for him, he could get it underneath his shirt. On the first day of class, he found himself assigned to the toughest class in the school, a bunch of really rough smart aleck punk kids, you know, and they were already deciding they were going to test this uh, former drill sergeant teacher, but they were a little bit leery of him, so they, they were going to just kind of feel him out to see how tough he was as to whether they would try any pranks on him or not. So anyway, he walks into the class, and uh, he walks over to the window, and he opens the window up, and he sits down on the desk beside the window, and as he's sitting there talking to the class, the wind starts to blow, and his tie starts blowing. He reaches down and grabs his tie, picks up a stapler and staples his tie to his chest. Think about it for a minute, okay? He never had any discipline, any had never disciplined problems the whole the whole year round. You would think that after what Jesus did in Capernaum and what he has done in his ministry up to this point, you would think that he would never have any trouble with anyone rejecting him, but that's not the case. We're going to find him being rejected by his own hometown. So if you're our guest this morning, we're studying through Mark's biography of the life of Jesus. And we've come to chapter 6. And we're going to look at two events that Mark records for us. I'm calling these Rejection and Mission. That's the title for today's talk, Rejection and Mission, as these are the two center themes of these two stories. So have your Bible open. I'm going to be reading from the CSB. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He left there, that would be Jesus, left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't, aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief and he was going around the villages teaching. Well, there's a number of things that I'd like us to note from this story as, uh, as we begin. First of all, Jesus had brothers and sisters. James and Joseph, which is another way of saying Joseph. So these are the brothers of Jesus, James and Joseph, Judas and Simon. We don't know anything about Simon or Joseph, and he had sisters. We don't even know his sisters' names. We don't know how many he had. He had at least two because he had sisters, right? But he may have had three, four sisters. We don't know how many siblings Jesus actually had. Catholic Christians maintain that Mary remained a perpetual virgin for her entire life, that she never had relations with her husband. Uh, This was declared to be so in 550 AD, almost six Five and a half centuries after Jesus, someone declared without any biblical evidence that Jesus, I mean, excuse me, that Mary never uh, remained a a perpetual virgin, never had relations with her husband. And so I'd like to ask this question without any biblical evidence. Why would she have done that? 
Both marital relationships and children are a gift from God. So there's not a need whatsoever for us to believe that somehow God kept those gifts from Mary and, and Joseph. As a matter of fact, I think it's almost, it almost goes against the scripture to believe that Mary and Joseph didn't have children because that was one of the things that God desired of us, that we would come together as, as, as couples in his name, and we would bear children for him. That's his goal for us. That's his desire for family. Really, family isn't just about our own personal happiness. I mean, it does include that. But one of the reasons God created family is that we might procreate and, and bring into this world children that we would raise up to love and to follow him. So why would God not have wanted Mary and Joseph to, to have children? But those who do not believe that uh, Jesus had actual brothers and sisters, they believe these to be the half-siblings, Jesus' half-siblings. They were the sons of Joseph from a previous marriage, it's maintained. But again, without any biblical support for such an idea. Another thing I'd like you to note from the story is that Jesus worked as a carpenter during his teen and millennial years. We often think of, of Joseph the carpenter, right? But it's Jesus the carpenter all throughout his 20s. At, his, at the age of 30, he leaves carpentry and he begins to do the, the work of an itinerant preacher, right? But prior to this, he is a carpenter. And we know that because they ask the question when Jesus returns to, uh, to his hometown, they say, isn't this the carpenter? So maybe as many as 15 years, Jesus has been the carpenter in Nazareth. And that's how they've known him. He built their tables and their chairs and whatever else carpenters made in, uh, in those days. Maybe he built their homes. I'm not sure what he did as a carpenter, but that's how they knew him. Here's the third thing I'd like you to note. Joseph, Jesus' dad, had probably been gone for some time. And the reason I say that is because the people don't ask, isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? They say, isn't this the son of Mary? Again, I'm speculating here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just using my, my noggin and, uh, and I'm just speculating, but Joseph has evidently been so gone so long that they don't even refer to Jesus as the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. That's how they've known him for, for years. And again, that's just my speculation. But maybe the most disheartening part of this story is that the people of Nazareth are amazed by Jesus. They're amazed by what he's done. And yet they reject his claims to be the Messiah. They reject his claims to be God's anointed king. All right? They're amazed by all the things he does, but they uh, reject what he claims. They're amazed by his wisdom. They're astonished by his miracles. And yet they can't bring themselves to believe that this hometown boy, this carpenter for all these years, from their village is God's anointed Messiah, God's anointed king that's come to rule. They just can't bring themselves to believe it. And we saw this also in Mark 3, remember that? When Jesus is doing all these things, Mary and his siblings come to get him because they think he's lost his mind, right? So we see that his family, back all the way in Mark 3, they don't believe in Jesus at that point either. Of course, I tell you, I disagree with the thought that Mary doesn't, but his siblings don't. They are amazed what they saw and heard about Jesus, but in their amazement, they're still unwilling to believe. Now, in Mark, we read that they're offended by Jesus. In Luke's account, uh, when he's in the synagogue, Mark doesn't include this for us, but when he's in the synagogue, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah 
and he, he gets up to the desk and he reads Isaiah, a messianic passage. And then when he finishes reading it, his commentary is this, today in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. In other words, he's claiming that he's the person being written about in Isaiah, I think it was Isaiah 61. And uh, the Bible says that the people begin to murmur, how can this be, right? And then Jesus says to them, he says, a prophet is not without honor within his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. And then he points out their unbelief. And as he points out their unbelief, they they get upset with him. They're irritated. They're angry with him. They're offended by the fact that he's pointing out their unbelief. Now, we have a saying in English that familiarity breeds contempt, right? And maybe we get it from this. I'm not sure. But this is what's happening here. Their familiarity with Jesus as their hometown boy just will not let them believe that Jesus is God's anointed king. Now, it's interesting that Jesus is unable to do a miracle. Do you see that in the text? It says he's not able to do miracles. Literally, what it says is he's not able to do a work of power except to lay hands on a few people and heal them. And and it seems from the text anyway that that Jesus' ability to heal or his willingness to heal or however we want to couch that, it's linked to the unbelief of the Nazarenes. The reason that so little works of power are done is because of their unbelief. So I want to say something again that I said last week because I really want to drive it home. I said last week, it is God who heals. It is God who saves. It is his power that accomplishes both of those things. But God said that he will exercise his power in response to our faith, right? We talk about faith healing. Our faith never heals. Listen, if faith could heal, then Jesus would not need to have died. If faith could save, Jesus would not need to have died. We are saved and healed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But that work of God, that power of God, is applied to our life by faith. And I think this passage points to that. Our, the, our responsibility is faith. God's responsibility is to heal and do all of his thing. But our responsibility is to exercise faith in what God does. So we need to be careful. Do not conflate our responsibility to believe and our responsibility to have faith with God's responsibility to save and to heal. And I think we see that here. Now that's why they rejected Jesus, because they knew him so well. At least they thought they did. He's just a hometown boy. He's the carpenter, right? They they could not believe because of their familiarity with him. But I want to ask the question before we move to the second story, because I thought about this this week quite a bit. Why do people today who know so much about Jesus, why do they reject Jesus? Why, Why do people who know so much about Jesus today You know, not in the same way that the Nazarenes did, but why would they reject Jesus? So I'd like to offer three three suggested reasons why they uh, reject Jesus when they know so much about him. Number one, I believe people reject Jesus because Jesus doesn't fit in their plausibility structures. Now, what I mean by that is that it, it it just doesn't seem plausible to them 
that Jesus could actually have risen from the dead. Now, Sam Chan, in his book, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, says that plausibility structures are, and I'm going to quote him, are accepted beliefs, convictions, and understandings that either green light truth claims as plausible or red light them as implausible. Meaning, so let me give you an example. So if I came in here this morning and I said, guys, you wouldn't believe what happened last night. An alien ship landed in my front yard and these little aliens got out and we invited them in and we had din- they had dinner at our table, right? Most of you wouldn't believe that because it doesn't fit in your plaza. No matter how, how sincere I was or how much I tried to convince you, most of you would not believe that because it doesn't fit in your plausibility structures. Now, maybe for some of you, it does fit in your plausibility <laughs> structure. Maybe you would believe, you know, maybe you would believe. But I would imagine most of you would not believe that because it doesn't fit in your plausibility structures. For many Western people, the supernatural doesn't fit in their plausibility structures. And and maybe some of it does, but the resurrection of Jesus seems implausible because we haven't known anyone to rise from the dead and never to die uh, again. And we've never, that I know of, we've never known anyone to rise from the dead and and die again, although we we hear stories of that. But so it seems implausible to, to them that Jesus could rise from the dead. Sam Cham says, Sam, Sam Chan in his book said this, community, experience, facts, and evidence build our plausible and implausible structures. Those four things, community, experience, facts, and evidence build our plausible and implausible structures. And, and, and I think he's right. I've thought about that this week. Like, for instance, community. My children believe it's plausible for Jesus to have risen from the dead because I believed it and they were a part of a community that believed it and we looked at the evidence for that resurrection of Jesus. And so my children grew up with this, the, the resurrection of Jesus could be plausible. Our community helped instill that in my children. Evidence, you know, if I, well, I'll be honest with you now, if a, if a spaceship landed in my front yard, uh, from that point on, if you had such a story, my experience would probably lead me to be to accept that as plausible, right? So our experience does that. When we see God do certain things, we say, well, hey, resurrection is certainly plausible for God because he can do all these other things, etc. So, But for many folks, it is simply not plausible that Jesus rose from the dead. So no matter how much they know about Jesus, they will not accept that, that aspect of his claim. Here's another reason I think people reject Jesus, and these two are going to hit closer to home, I think. But, but here's, a, here's a second one. People don't want to submit themselves to anyone else. And, and if I'll be honest, I think this is the most compelling reason why people don't. They might know lots and lots about Jesus, but they're unwilling to bring themselves to trust in him and to believe in him because they're unwilling to submit their lives to him. And and I might add this. I might say that might have something to do with what happened in Nazareth because they they would be saying, man, you mean we have got to submit to this carpenter boy as our king? I mean, that might have been in the back of their minds. In evidence that demands a verdict, uh, Josh McDowell wrote years and years ago, he wrote, the rejection of Jesus as king is often not so much of the mind, but of the will. Not so much I can't, but I won't. Lee Strobel, in his more recent book, The Case for Faith, quotes Norman Geisler, and he says, it's not for a lack of evidence that people turn from God, it's from their pride or their will that they won't turn to God. 
The best one is a quote from Paul Little in his book, Know Why You Believe, and I like this one the best. He answers the question, if Christianity is rational and true, why is it that most educated people don't believe it? And this was his answer. They don't believe it for the very same reason most uneducated people don't believe it. They don't want to believe it. It's not a matter of brain power, for there are outstanding Christians in every field of the arts and science. It's a matter primarily of the will. And I think that's true. I think the reason most people don't follow Jesus, and in fact, they know so much about him, but they won't follow him because they're not willing to bring themselves underneath him. They're not willing to submit to him. And let's be honest, Jesus asked for your surrender. Jesus asked for it. He expects your obedience. True faith surrenders. Now, I don't mean perfection here. And we need to stop making excuses for our imperfections, but, but I don't mean perfections. Jesus, Jesus calls for perfection. I think he knows that's not an expectation in the sense that, hey, for me to accept you, you've got to be perfect. No. But there is this idea, this expectation on his part of us bringing ourselves under his lordship as our king. I mean, it's just absolutely so clear. And yet people want to rule. When I say people, I mean you and I mean me. We want to rule our own lives. We have to fight against that. We want to do our own thing. We want to live by our own moral, by our own moral code that we choose for ourselves. And it is really hard to put all of that on the shelf and choose what Jesus wants for me. So therefore, many people, when confronted with the claims of Jesus for obedience and, and surrender to him as king, they walk away. So the rich young ruler walks away because Jesus says, hey, I want you to sell everything you got and come and follow me. And he says, and he walks away sad because it says he's really rich. Many young people today want to follow culture and not Christ. And, and so here's what's happening. The culture, the culture is asking young people for one thing and saying one thing. And, 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 you know, and we all want to be a part of our peer group. We don't want to, we don't want to be weird. We want to, we, want to st- we want to not really stand out. We want to be a part of that. And I know there's outliers to that, but that's probably true for most of us. We want, to, we want to be accepted by everything, by everybody. And so here's the culture demanding this of us. And here's Christ saying this of us. And, and young people, listen, and old people too, all of us. I mean, we have to say, nope, I'm going to bring myself under Christ, not under my culture. So, so when the culture is asking us to embrace things like um, homosexuality or transgenderism or uh, even abortion or just whatever it might be, they, these are hot button items, I know, but they're the things that our culture is pushing. And, and, and young people, listen, I'm, I hate to tell you this, but following Jesus, you kind of have to say, not kind of, you have to say, can't go along that way. I've got to choose this. I think this is the reason why so many people, when they know a lot about Jesus, they don't want to follow him because they have to bring themselves under him and they don't want to do that. Jesus died for you. My last line on this point was, Jesus died for you, the ball is now in your court, right? Sports analogy there. The third reason I think that people reject Jesus when they, or don't follow Jesus when they know so much about him is that they know all about Jesus, but they don't necessarily believe it because they don't see it being real in our lives. Did you hear that? In past generations, people used to just ask this question, is it true? They don't ask that question anymore. Uh, this generation, generation, was it the, the generation Y and Z and all of them? I mean, they're asking, is it true in your life? 
Has it really made a difference for you? Not just is it true, but is it true for you? Has it, has it affected your life? Is it real? In other words, has, has Jesus made a difference in your life? And that's what people are asking. People are looking to see whether we walk the walk of Jesus or whether we just talk the talk of Jesus. And if we just talk the talk of Jesus, then people know all about Jesus, but they say he's not real because, hey, look, I see these people talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. I don't see Jesus changing their lives. I have two friends. One uh, is closely following Jesus and the other is not. Um, I have lots of friends, by the way. <laughs> I got two special friends, though, and, uh, and, and they're friends. And um, one is following Jesus and one is not. And the one that follows Jesus is always preaching to the one that's not following Jesus. And he's always calling him to repent and to follow Jesus. I mean clearly, specifically. But I happen to know that the one who is following, not following Jesus he believes that Jesus doesn't really change anybody's life. He says people can't change. Jesus doesn't really change anybody's life. And my friend who is following Jesus, that keeps calling my friend who's not following Jesus to follow Jesus, he has this huge glaring blind spot in his life. It's huge. It's a blind spot for him. He's not blind anymore. Man, I've called him out on him. I've confronted him on him. I've challenged him on it. I've called on him to stop preaching to our friend and instead to deal with the blind spot in his life. But my following Jesus friend with the blind spot in his life, he won't change. Won't change. Won't address the blind spot in his life. So our other friend continues in his unbelief. I know that's convoluted. Would my friend repent, the one who's not following, would he repent and follow Jesus if my friend who followed Jesus would just deal with the blind spot in his life? Who knows? I don't know. But I do know this. My Jesus friend, he's giving my not following Jesus friend a reason to not believe. He's putting an obstacle up in his path. He's giving him an excuse not to follow. And this should impact us, folks, in our sharing Jesus. Because I want you to understand, it's not just the propositional truth that you have to share. It's that you have to share your life, you have to share your life as part of that truth. In other words, as we tell people all about Jesus, people need to be able to look at our life and say, yep, you have been changed by Jesus. I see it in your life. Now, now, this is not new. We might think this is new. Maybe I've made it sound like this is just new for this generation. And, and I think it's become really more real for this generation, but it's not just new for this generation. We go all the way back to Thessalonica. And when Paul was in Thessalonica, he writes to them a letter after he's left. And he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord when you accepted the message that came from the Holy Spirit with joy in spite of great suffering. And as a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, Macedonia the message about the Lord rang out from you. Okay, that would be the propositional truth. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place, the news of your faithfulness to God, that's the living it out, has spread so that we don't need to, we don't need even to mention it. People tell us about what sort of welcome we had from you and how you turned to God from idols. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, listen, the propositional truth of the message went out from you about the kingdom of God, but the message also went out how your lives were changed. Our lives are part of the message. People believe because they heard it and they saw it. And conversely, people don't believe the gospel, even though they might know all about Jesus, because a lot of times we are a hindrance to them. 
because we're not living for the Lord Jesus. They don't see any difference in our life. And maybe we're, we're not just a hindrance, maybe we're, hey, this isn't real because it isn't real in their life. That brings us to the second half of this talk this morning on mission. Jesus co we're leaving that subject behind, we're leaving that first story behind. Jesus commissions his disciples, meaning he invites them now to participate with him in the mission. And they're to go out, and he's giving them responsibility to embrace the mission, and I mean to personally go out and preach the good news of the kingdom's coming. So they are now to be there to take on the mission themselves personally. The king is here. The kingdom's begun. You go out and preach it. So let's look at the verses. Verse 7. He summoned the 12 and began to spend, uh, send them out in pairs, gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that, uh, that people should repent. And they drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And I want to add one more piece of data from Luke's biography of this same account. He writes, Jesus called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So here it is. Jesus has sent them out on the mission, and the mission is there to go and proclaim that God's kingdom has come. The king is here. The Messiah has come. The kingdom has begun, and you can be a part of it. And then, part, that was part of their, their mission, but their mission was also to authenticate that message by healing people and, and restoring people. God, de- Jesus delegates authority to them so they can cast out demons and heal the sick. Now, before we look at, uh, at this particular sending, let me establish that this is our mission today. Now, I did this not too long ago, maybe several weeks ago, so I'm not going to do it again this morning, but I want you to believe, I want you to understand, I want you to know that the same mission that he gave them, the same co-mission that they were to be on is the same mission that we're to be on. It's, it's our co-mission. I, I'm supposed to be on this mission, and so are you. And our mission is to go and to preach the kingdom of Jesus. That's, where, that's our mission, to preach his kingdom, invite people to join his kingdom, to talk about how the king came. We, that's our mission, to go and preach the kingdom. And, and I'm also saying that our mission is to go out and validate that preaching. We're to validate that preaching that, that we're to make. So I, I'm saying that's our mission. And uh, like I said, I did this not too long ago, so I'm not going to do it again. I will simply say that at the end of his 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus gives us the, what we call the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the ethnic groups of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age or to the end. And we, that could be just for those 12 guys or those 120 people, but we know it wasn't because all throughout the book of Acts, and like I said, we did this a few weeks ago, all throughout the book of Acts, the believers, it was their mission. I mean, we just read, it was their mission. They were, they were telling everyone everywhere they went that Jesus had risen from the dead. So it's not just for the 12, it's not for the 72, it's not for the 120, it's for all of us. Now, let's notice four aspects of their mission, all right? 
And, and I think we can learn from these things that Jesus said to these 12 on this very first sending out of these co-missionaries with him. The first one was this. They were to travel light. It says in the text, they were to take no staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. Uh, they were to wear sandals, but they weren't to wear an extra shirt. Now, I wonder if we might construe this this way. This is what I think. Why did he, somebody asked me in prayer meeting this morning, why did, why did he do that? And, and this is my answer. It's my speculation because it doesn't tell us. But I think he's trying to say to them, while you're on mission, I want you to walk by faith. I want you to trust me. You don't take extra money. Don't take extra clothes. I mean, I'm going to provide. I want you to be absolutely trusting me, travel light. When I was a young Christian, probably 19, 20 years old, somebody handed me a book. It was called Bruchko. I actually passed it out to a bunch of you guys, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I was thinking this week I should get that book again and we should read it as a church. But Bruce Olson, he's 80 some years old now. But when he was 19 years old, back in the 1960s, I think it was, he bought a one-way ticket to Columbia to go to the Modalone Indians. He bought a, he's 19 years old. And all he's got is the sense that God wants him to go. He has no money. He has nothing. He buys a ticket, and he goes to Columbia to reach the Modalone Indians. And can I tell you something? He did. He did reach the Modalone Indians. He changed their, Jesus changed their world. But he used Bruce, who traveled so lightly they called him Bruchko because they couldn't say his name. I don't know if they couldn't say Bruce and they called that Bruchko or if it was Bruce Olson and that came out Bruchko. But, uh, but he changed the world uh, and he, because he, he had nothing but just his faith in God and just stepping out and obeying. The church has accumulated lots of things today. We have lots of stuff. We have buildings and agencies, mission agencies. We have publishing houses. We have retreat centers. We've gone from being the outlier to being the power structure in many places. We've gone from having nothing to having cathedrals and fortress-like uh, centers around the world. And we don't need to walk much by faith. You know why? Because we've got huge bank accounts now. What would happen if all of a sudden we didn't have any assets? No bread, no bag, no money, no belt, no money in our belts? What would happen to us if we didn't have all that we have today? Well, I think we'd have to live by faith a whole lot more, right? We'd have to live by faith a whole lot more. Now, listen, I, I, I have this in my notes. I'm not suggesting that the things that I just said are bad in and of themselves. I'm not saying that at all. But I am suggesting this. I am suggesting that all those things that we have accumulated over the years and maybe things that God has given to us, you know, they have lessened our need to walk by faith. Would you agree with me? That all these things that we have, they're not necessarily bad, but we can depend on them. And so we don't have to, we don't have to walk by faith so, so much anymore. We, but Jesus tells them, take no money. Take no money. Depend on me. I, I'm suggesting to us that Jesus wants us today on this mission to be absolutely dependent on him. I'm not saying get rid of our buildings. I'm not saying get rid of our mission agencies. I'm not saying that. But I am saying we have to find a way back to walking by faith, to maybe quit hugging, maybe quit being so close to the trunk of the tree and getting way out on the limb of the tree where it's real easy to fall off. We have to trust God to keep us on the limb, right? We have to find a way to walk by faith. I'm not, when I first came here, 
I don't know if you remember, it was soon after coming here, I didn't come here with this conviction, but soon after I heard a brother talk about debt-free building. And, and I remember he talked about how, you know, the church bills and, and does things, but they're always dependent on the bank, right? They're trusting in the bank, you know, and all. And he said, man, why don't we trust God and, and let God provide for us to build buildings? And man, I suggested that to you all, and, and that's, that's how we've lived for the last 35 years. That was an attempt to, to live by faith and, and, and trust God, okay? We've got to find other ways, maybe ways that aren't related to physical buildings anymore. We've got to find ways for our church family, for me personally and for you, to walk more by faith to put our faith in Jesus, to put ourselves out there where we're having to depend on him. I think that's what he wants from us in this mission. Now again, I'm applying what he said to them. I'm, I'm almost 100% sure that that's what he's trying to say to them, depend on me in this mission, right? I think he's saying that to us too. Number two, they were to be a guest. Verse 10, he said to them, wherever you go into a house, stay there until you leave that place. They weren't to go and take over they weren't to go to build houses or anything like that. On this mission, and again, it's different today. I'm not suggesting that we have to do it exactly like, I don't believe we have to do it. I don't believe we can do it like they did it in those days. But, but he says, go in, and you're not going in as the owner and the controller. You're not going in as the power broker. You're going in as the servant. You're going in as the guest. You're going in as the person who's there to be a learner, to be a helper, to be a carer, not to be someone who's in charge. I think John Maxwell has this maxim that he uses a lot. We've used it here. We've talked about it a lot. And, uh, and I, I really believe John is capturing what maybe Jesus is trying to say here. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And so he sends them out not to take over, but he sends them out to be a servant to everyone else. They're to be a guest in other people's home. Number three, to, they were to bring healing their agenda was to tell the world that the king was here, that the kingdom of God had come, and then and charge them, call them to repentance, call them to begin to follow the king. But then they were to prove that their message was true by healing and caring for people. So verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They should come and join the kingdom of God. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus delegated to those 12 men the authority to lay their hands on anyone, and I'm assuming everyone, and anoint them with oil and heal them. And he gave them the ability to recognize demons and to cast out all demons, and this they did. Now some people today believe all believers are given the same delegated authority to heal and to cast out demons. I do not, okay? Uh, God gives his people gifts as he sees fit, and I think he gives them to some people, but I don't think all of us have been given that same delegated authority. Some of us may have those gifts, but uh, I don't see that biblically and anecdotally, okay? But having said that, I do believe that we are all called to authenticate the message of the gospel. And if you have the ability, the gifts to heal everyone you lay your hands on, by all means, that is what you should do. And if you have the means and the ability to recognize demons and cast them all out, that's what you should do. But if you do not have that ability, here is what you should do. Because all of you have this ability. All of you have the ability to love people 
in Jesus' name. All of you have the ability to serve them in Jesus' name. All of you have the ability to change their world by loving people. And so the Apostle Paul would write this. He would say, if I could speak all languages of humans and even angels, if I did not love others, I would be nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Let me, can I just stop and paraphrase that for a moment or put it in Jimmy's thoughts? You know, if I am the best preacher of the propositional truth of Jesus, but I don't love people, I'm nothing but a noisy gong. You follow that? I mean, you'd be a great preacher of the gospel. You'd be a great preacher of the, of the kingdom news. But if you don't love people, are you, all you are is a noisy gong. Why? Because the message is the propositional truth that Jesus died and his kingdom has begun. And we can be a part of it. But the message is, hey, he changed me. Look at me. Look how he's changed me. And so all of us, if I, if I can preach like the best of preachers, but I don't love, I'm a noisy, clanging gong and cymbal. What if I could prophesy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge? What if I understood the Bible perfectly? Then what if I had faith that moved mountains and, and would be, I would be nothing unless I loved others? What if I gave away all that I owned, let myself be burned alive, now, why you would do that if you didn't love others, but I would gain nothing unless I loved others. God wants to heal people. God wants to save people. God wants to lift up the hurting and the marginalized, and he wants to use you and me in that. He's calling you and me to bring the message of Jesus and then authenticate it by loving people. Number four, they were to shake off rejection. Jesus knew they would not be rejected. Jesus knew they would, right? They would be rejected, not everywhere, but some places. And they'd been privy to that in Nazareth. They had been with him. If you go back and look at the text, it says he was with them, with his disciples in Nazareth. So they'd been privy to the rejection of Jesus in Nazareth. So Jesus says to them in verse 11, if any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You know, when we share Jesus, whether it's, with our, whether it's propositionally and with our lives, not whether, when we share Jesus with propositional truth, with the authentication of our lives, people are going to say, no thanks. They're going to say, I don't want it. You remember, um, you remember uh, the parable of the soils? You know, some of it falls on hard ground. They just, they don't even want it. I remember telling my, wanting to talk to my neighbor about Jesus, and I asked his permission. Hey, can I tell you about Jesus, how he changed my life? And he said, no, thank you. And, uh, and it was a little bit awkward for a minute, and I said, okay, you know. Other people are going to say, let's kill them. It's not just that they're going to reject, they're, they're going to reject you as well. Our job is not to force or manipulate, but Paul does say that our job is persuasion. We're to use persuasion as much as we can. Our job is to present Jesus and call others to love him and follow him. We seek peace and healing wherever we go. If people aren't ready, we, we simply move on. We don't have to be argumentative. We don't have to have animosity. We shake the dust off our feet and we just move on. And that dust, by the way, it's a warning. It's a warning of impending judgment from rejecting the Lord. So now let me distill these two stories into three challenges. So if you're following the notes in the back, we're, we're getting close. So hang in there with me. And this is probably the most important part because this is my challenge to, to us. I, I pretty, some of you have said, hey, Jimmy, I really appreciate the, 
the applications. Well, that's this part right here, and I think it's important. So let me distill it into, into three challenges, these two stories, three challenges for us. Here's the first one. Jesus, like those 12, has sent you and me on mission. It all begins when we hear the story of Jesus and it begins to take root in our heart. And when it begins to take root in our heart and leads us to surrender in faith to Jesus and follow him, at some point when we begin to follow him, his mission becomes our mission. His his plan becomes our plan. His desire becomes our desire. When you receive Jesus as king, you are accepting that mission. And the mission is to go and tell people about Jesus and his kingdom and then prove it true by your life. Whenever I speak of, uh, of this, it always, it always comes to mind. And over the last 35 years, you've heard it. But I can't think about this with, without this kind of music beginning to pop up into my, uh, in, I mean, in my head as a... Uh, Dun, 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 right? You old folks, you remember that, right? It was called Mission Impossible. And so Jim, who was the leader of the Mission Impossible group, he'd find some tape somewhere, because they had tapes back then. <laughs> and they'd find some tape, and, uh, and they'd give the mission. And then the guy would say, Jim, if you, if you decide to take this mission, and yada, yada, yada. And it's not that way with us who follow Jesus. It's not like Jesus sits down with you and he says, hey, if you decide to take the mission, here's what you gotta do. No, it's when you take him, you take the mission. When you follow Jesus, you're on mission with him. I mean, as he comes, it's, 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 a, it's a one deal thing, guys. When we get Jesus as king, we get his kingdom and we get his purposes and his mission. And so we're all on mission. So I challenge you to, this morning, to take up the mission to, for you to take it up, for us to take it up as a church, to, re, to retake it up, okay? Here's my second challenge. And again, maybe you're gonna say, Jimmy, these are all just a repeat. Yeah, they are, I'm sorry. You are part of the authentication of your mission. That's my challenge to you. You are a part of that message of the mission. You are the authentication of that message. You know, we've, we've probably all heard of Mahatma Gandhi, right? Mahatma Gandhi was that great Indian leader and uh, by, his, by his persistent life you know, of nonviolence and seeking after truth, he really, he really changed his world. Uh, but uh, you may know this, maybe you don't, but when he was a young Hindu, Christianity intrigued him. And so he read the Gospels, and when he read the four biographies of Jesus, he was greatly intrigued by Jesus, and he wanted to know more about this Jesus that he said Christians called the Messiah, which we do, right? He's our king. That's what Messiah means. So on Sunday morning, Gandhi went to a church to find out more about Jesus. And of course, he's in India. And when he got to the door, he was stopped by the ushers. And they said, this church is for high caste Indians and for white people. You're not allowed to come in to this church. And, uh, and Gandhi left. And of course, you know, Gandhi didn't become a Christian. Um, but he would later say this. He would later say, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Now, I don't know if that's really true, right? We, the, the reason we don't bring ourselves under Jesus said the most compelling reason is because we don't want to submit to him. But remember, I did say one of the reasons why people don't come is because they don't see it real in our lives. I wonder, Gandhi fits that, that picture. 
He says, I didn't come to Jesus because, hey, I like Jesus, but his followers, they want nothing real in their life. People back then, maybe now more than ever, are looking to see if Jesus is real in our lives. He's got to be real in our lives. And not just on Sunday morning, guys. He's got to be real in our life every day, all the time. Has he given you the abundance that he promised? Do you live the abundant life? And I don't mean money here at all. Has he given you the abundant life, the abundant joy, the abundant peace, the abundant love? Has he given you those things? Are they real in your life? When people think of you, they go, wow, there's a person who's filled with joy and peace and love? Or do they say, oh my goodness, here comes Eeyore, let's go, you know? Bruchko later said, Bruchko later said about the Modalone people, he said, Jesus changed them. And they went from not caring about each other or anyone to caring about everyone. That's how Jesus changed them. That's how Jesus changes us. I remember two years, uh, not two years ago, years ago, two brothers worked, two Christian brothers worked out of Dominion Power. And both of these brothers were really, they were just, they were the kind of type A personalities, both of them. I mean, they could say anything to anyone they didn't care. One of them pulled the other one aside. This is the truth, this is not a joke. One of them pulled the other one aside. He said, hey, let, do me a favor, would you? Don't tell anybody else you're a Christian. He said, because the way you're living your life is a poor testimony to Jesus. If you've been gifted and empowered by Jesus to heal the sick and cast out demons, do so. Do so often. Do so all the time. But if you have not, you have been gifted to love people in Jesus' name. And you should be loving people 24-7 all the time all the time. Give evidence of life transformation in your life. And then the final thing, accept rejection and shake it off. I'd originally written, expect rejection and shake it off. I realized that was wrong. I don't want you sharing Jesus expecting rejection. I want you to share Jesus expecting that you may change somebody's world. You may turn them upside down. You may transform their family. I'm telling you, I think about certain families in our church today, and I look at where the kids and grandkids are, and I think, wow, what a different trajectory that family may have had if, if this person hadn't come to Christ. So when you share, when you share Jesus, I mean, expect Jesus to bring transformation, but accept the fact that rejection is, is going to be there, and maybe even often. But don't take it personally, shake it off. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus, right? That's what happened in the Old Testament. They wanted a king, and Samuel got all pouty about it. And God said to Samuel, the prophet, he said, man, why are you pouting? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So when people reject the kingdom, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus, the king. They're rejecting him. I remember when I was in Campus Crusade in college, we had an axiom that we, we used to preach to each other all the time. Share Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to him. I mean, just, just, hey, you know, don't be offended. Don't be hurt if somebody doesn't receive the Lord. Don't be discouraged or disheartened. Adoniram Judson went with his wife, Ann, to Burma. And um, he was there for six years, six years, telling people about Jesus before the first person became a disciple. You know, shake off rejection. But let's be, let's be thorough and it's definitely possible for people to reject Jesus, but reject you too, right? You might lose a friendship here and there. You might, uh, you might even get uh, fired or whatever. 
you know, because of your faith in Jesus. Or worse, in some cases they want to destroy you. In Nazareth, they want to destroy Jesus. Luke tells us they were going to take him to the cliff and throw him off the cliff. They were going to try, they were trying to kill him. This past week, the Taliban ordered judges. This past week, ordered the judges in Afghanistan to order the death penalty for anyone who begins to follow Jesus in their Muslim world. As if it wasn't even bad enough for the Afghani believers, right? Recently, uh, Voice of the Martyrs published a story of Rebecca in northern Nigeria. She and her daughter were out for, I don't know what they were doing, but they were away from their village, and when they came back, they could see smoke in the distance, and up on a hill, they watched as their village was slaughtered and attacked by, by Muslims, you know, Muslim extremists or, you know, Muslims, and because they were Christians, and her husband and her um, son were martyred. So, so people who reject Jesus, sometimes they're going to reject you. And I mean, they're going to reject you bad. So there's the specifics, the three specific challenges. The mission, it's yours. Take it up. You are part of the authentication of that message. So remember that. Remember that. When you're at work, when you're at play, wherever you are, remember your life is an authentication of that message. And number three, don't let rejection trip you up. We may find that people don't hear our message of hope. That doesn't mean we should stop sharing it, right? We should keep on sharing it because there will be people along the way that will receive it. So as Jesus said to his disciples back then, John 20, 21, Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.